We're in Ephesians 5 today, uh, continuing a series of messages talking about marriage. And we began by looking back at the beginning of God's word, Genesis 1 and 2, seeing his good creation. And as God went through each of those steps and phases of creation, at each point, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Part of his design we see in his creation of men and women in his image, we find out in Genesis chapter 1. Then we got to Genesis 3 and we see where sin has come in and distorted our relationship with God and with one another. As Eve and Adam ate that fruit in the garden and they became aware of their nakedness and they began to hide from one another and from God and there was shame introduced and there was uh, a rift between God and humans because of that choice to go for knowledge of good and evil ourselves rather than trusting in God and and in his word. And then last week getting to the good news that Jesus came to repair that rift, that Jesus came to do away with the curse and, its, and, and sin and its effects in our lives, to lift that burden from us, to allow us to return to that place of right relationship with God, to cover our sins with his blood. And a little bit later today, we're going to celebrate that work that Jesus finished on the cross as we take communion and remember his broken body and his shed blood. So today we're getting to the second part of Ephesians 5. And this is some clear uh, instructions to both husbands and to wives. And really it does touch on that theme that uh, Mr. Brian talked about today, that the topic of leadership, servant leadership. What is it to lead and what is it to follow? And we need to remember Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as we're looking at the topic of leadership. Like every other way that we interact with one another, our ideas of leadership are tainted by sin. And we tend to do the very things that Jesus says, don't do this when it comes to leadership. Don't lord it over like the rulers of the Gentiles. Don't come to be served. And we tend to not do the very things that Jesus models and explicitly states. Come to serve. Come to give your life as a ransom. Come to do not your will, but the will of the Father. And so our our ideas of leadership are shaped by our culture, by the world around us, by the things that we see emulated in business and in the workplace, by the examples of our own upbringing and parents. We've got kids here in the room today. We are a part of shaping their ideas of what it is to lead and to follow. And so we come now humbly to God's word saying, God, we need to be transformed by you. We need your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to deal with the sin in our lives. It's a daily struggle. It's a daily battle. We thank God for the finished work of Christ on the cross that secures our salvation. And now we get to experience the joy of living that out and working that out and having it affect parts of our lives like leadership and following. So here as we get to Ephesians 5, the second part, this is a letter that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote to the churches in Ephesus, meeting in people's homes throughout this city where there was worship of a pagan deity named Artemis, There was a lot of perversion, distortion, a lot of sinful things happening there in Ephesus. But in the midst of that darkness, there was a light shining and it was called the people of God, the gathered people of God, the church. And so God had a mission for the Christians there in Ephesus to give a picture to the the non-believers in Ephesus of what his kingdom looks like. And guess what? This letter is not just for the Ephesians back in the first century. This is a word from God by his Holy Spirit to us today living as salt and light in the midst of darkness. And God also has a mission for us to demonstrate and show the world what it is to be his followers. 
Uh, Ephesians 2 gives us some context. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. That's the bad news. And then comes the good news. But God. He made us alive together with Christ. So there is a new life. There's a resurrection. We're not trapped in that old pattern, those old ways of living, which are described in Ephesians 4. There was that old self, but we've moved from that to the new self. There was falsehood, but now we have truth. There was corrupting talk coming out of our mouths, but now by God's Spirit, we are enabled to use words that edify and build up. There was a pattern of grieving the Holy Spirit as God looked at those who were in sin and trapped in that pattern and under sin's curse, grieving God's Spirit to now being able to live in a new way of living, preparing for the day of redemption. And we are that already, but not yet people. Already in God's kingdom, not yet fully formed, still becoming still submitting, still, still being transformed and renewed day by day into the image of Christ. There was the bitterness, the wrath, the anger, the clamor, the slander, the malice that defined us before we knew Jesus. And now we are empowered and enabled to move toward kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness, Ephesians 4. And finally, at the beginning of chapter 5, we're called and commanded by God to be imitators of God walking in love. There's a lot of confusion in our culture as to what love is. So to make that really clear, Paul says, walk in love as imitators of God, looking to Christ as the example of what love is. How did Christ love? He gave himself. These are the attributes and characteristics that define children of the light what it is to be imitators of God. This is what God, by his spirit, empowers us and enables us to do. Would you like to see your marriage in this category or in this one? Praise be to God that you're no longer trapped in this old pattern, the old you, the old where there's hurt and there's pain and there's self-service and there's hiding and there's barriers caused by sin. Thanks be to God that marriage can take a new turn and move in a new direction because of the power of God's Spirit. That's the good news, and that's the picture that God is calling us to today. Now, the passage we're going to study together is uh, beginning in, in chapter 5, verse 21. Really, this is a heading with three bullet point subpoints under it in Paul's letter. So the very first verse, we touched on it last week, it says, "...submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." That word submitting in Greek, hupotasso. So the, the first part of that, hypo, we would have that in the English word hypodermic. Where do you put, what, the dermis is a layer of skin, right? Where does that needle go? It goes hypo, the dermis, under the dermis. So that first part of that word submit is under. And then tasso is to arrange, to put in place. So really this word to submit is to arrange under to place uh, under, beneath. And that's what that word says, and it's a commandment to all of us, to all believers. If we're out of reverence for Christ, imitators of God, we are all commanded toward one another to arrange ourselves beneath each other and to have this posture of saying, no, you go first. No, I insist. Let me serve you. This is the servant leadership that typified King David The Bible calls King David a man after God's own heart. It's the picture that we have of Jesus 
as he's explicitly talking to his disciples while in the process of washing their stinky feet. And he say, hey guys, just so we're clear on this, who's the Lord here in this room? And well, you're the Lord. Guys, are you noticing as I'm washing your feet, are you seeing this example? Follow this same example. If I, your Lord, am serving you and washing your feet, you guys do the same for one another. So Jesus taught and modeled this way of, of submitting, of arranging himself beneath. Although he was Lord, he willingly gave that up and willingly submitted his will to the Father. And he lived by every word that came from the mouth of God. And he also arranged himself beneath those that he had come to lead. And it's an entirely different picture of leadership than what we see out there in our world. So this is the heading. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The next verse goes and and gives some application of that. Bullet point number one would be wives and husbands. How do you apply this verse to wives and husbands? This is the bulk of our text today, Ephesians 22 through the end of that chapter, verse 33. So really the first bullet point on what does it look like to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is very practical teaching and instruction to husbands and wives. The next two smaller passages come in chapter 6 where there's instructions to parents and their children and then to bond servants and their masters. So we'll focus mostly on the verses that relate to our topic of marriage, but we'll also look at a a couple of those verses from the beginning of chapter 6. So now I have good news for the wives. Verse 22, in the Greek, the word submit is not in this verse. Isn't that, aren't you relieved to hear that? Because it's already in verse 21, and now it's just tied into verse 22. So it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as unto the Lord. And so the, as we carry that to English so that the thought is not lost, it's still referring back to that word, that command, that verb in verse 21, to arrange yourself under your husbands as to the Lord. This is not a real popular verse in America in the 21st century. In fact, the word submit makes us bristle no matter what gender we are. It's because we've seen pictures of leadership that are contrary to God's word. It's because we have a sin nature ourselves that says, no, I don't want to be the person down on my knees with the towel and the basin washing somebody else's feet. I want the seat of honor. I want the recognition. I want the prestige I want to call the shots. If someone's held me under their thumb, I want to displace them so I get to be the boss. This is really the the heart posture for both men and women, women living today. This is a challenging text of Scripture here, beginning with this first paragraph addressing wives. And the good news is it's a much shorter paragraph than the two paragraphs that come with some instructions to the husbands. So here, at the, at, right at the beginning, we have this command, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This is not a verse that's talking about male superiority. It's not saying women submit to all men. Arrange yourselves beneath the other gender because you're inferior. In fact, we, we can reject that idea right away by looking back to God's original design as seen in Genesis 1 and 2. What does it say in Genesis 1 about the day, the sixth day of creation as God makes men and women? It says he made mankind in his image. 
Male and female, he made them. God created us in his image. In the image of God, he created us. Male and female, we are equally bearers of the divine image before God. And so there's no, uh, don't read something into this verse that doesn't exist. It's not saying that men are, are more important than women. It's not saying that women are inferior. We are both divine image bearers. But now there's a, a way that women can live out the gospel in their marriages, that wives towards their husbands in the way that they practice following can really lead in the way that Brian was encouraging the kids today to say, I'm going to be a helper. I'm going to submit. I'm going to serve. We see Jesus modeling these same attributes. He comes to the Father and he willingly offers submission to the Father. In fact, in the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does Jesus say? This is the night before he's to be betrayed, stand a mock trial, the day before he's to be crucified on the cross. And as he's there, agonizing, praying, praying so intensely that there are drops of blood coming out of his pores. And he's praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays this prayer. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. In other words, God, if there is a plan B, can we please do that? But then there's this offer of submission willingly. And he says, God, not my will, but yours be done. And the father looks at that offer of submission, voluntarily given, not coerced, not forced, not God the father saying you will submit, but Jesus as the model of this willingness, willingness to submit, willingness to serve, willingness to give. What does the Father do? Well, we find out in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi that God exalts him to the highest place and gives him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess on heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. God takes that willing, willing offer of submission and he says, I'm going to receive that offer and now I'm going to elevate you. I'm going to exalt you. That's the picture of love that we have that's existed throughout all of eternity, all of time between the Father and the Son. That's the picture that we are called to model. Wives, this is the picture that you're called to follow in your marriage. Jesus says, just as I willingly offered submission to the Father, wives, I call you to do that in your marriage. And then he empowers you and enables you to live that out. We get to verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife. What does that mean? Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So in, I, I guess the question there as you're reading verse 23 is, in what way is Christ the head of the church? Yeah, I don't think any of us would have a hard time saying, yeah, we as a church want to submit to Jesus. It's easy to submit to Jesus. Why? Well, he's not only the head, he's also our Savior. We need to be rescued. We need to be rescued from our sin. We need to be rescued from the consequences of our sin. From the wrath and judgment that we are under because of our sin. And Jesus comes and he rescues us and he saves us and he's the head of a living organism called the church. That's a picture of 
Wives and husbands, Paul tells us here in verse 23. The husband is the head of his wife, not in that he's got all the brains, not because he's better than her, but in the way that Jesus is the head of the church. What's Jesus doing with the church? We're going to find that out as we get to some of the instructions to the husbands. Okay, there's something beautiful that Jesus does as the Savior and as the head of the church, and there is a mission and a purpose that's involved. And so wives, before you pass judgment on this verse or your ability to live it out, stay tuned because there's more to come in the instructions to husbands. But Jesus is the picture of what headship and authority and leading really looks like. How does Jesus practice lordship? He does it somehow in this upside-down way of submitting. He comes to the Father and says, Not my will, but yours be done. He gives explicit instructions there in Matthew 20. He says, don't, don't be like the rulers of the Gentiles. So there is a negative example of leadership that, Paul, or that Jesus points to. says, don't do it that way. Don't lord it over like the rulers of the Gentiles do. So you've seen examples in the culture around you of what leadership should not look like. Don't do that. And then he talks to his followers. He says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And then speaks of himself. The son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to be great, Jesus says, be a servant. So really, Paul's instructions to wives is no different than what Jesus had already said back in the gospel. You want to be great. You want to be used by God. You want to be a picture of God's kingdom. Serve. Submit. Order yourself under your husband. Say, you first. I'll follow. You lead. Again, this is within the context of Ephesians 5.21, the same instruction given to all of us regardless of our age or our gender or our ethnicity or our status, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The night that Jesus in John chapter 13 is washing the feet of his disciples, Peter resists that. He says, no, no, Jesus, you can't submit to me. You can't order yourself under me in this practical way of demonstrating that you're serving, touching my stinky feet. I should be washing your feet, Jesus. What does Jesus say in response to Peter's resistance? Unless you allow me to wash your feet, you can have no part in me. Part of being a good leader is you have to be a good follower in God's kingdom. The most important part, according to Jesus. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. If you want any part in the kingdom of God, Jesus says to Peter, allow me to serve you, Jesus says. And then he gives us a picture of what that is as he goes to the cross, takes our sin, the payment of our sin upon himself. That's how Jesus practices lordship. Then we get to verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Brings up another question. How does the church submit to Christ? 
Well, Jesus is a servant leader, and he submits to the will of the Father. And really it's because he's focused not on his own needs, his own desires, his own self-actualization, his own goals and objectives. There's a mission that's in mind. And Jesus says the mission is bigger than me. And that mission is God's redemption plan. So Jesus was there before the dawn of time, before, dawn, before creation began. He was there when God said, let there be. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning before time began. And when God said, let there be, Jesus was already there. So he saw the good work of creation each day as creation began to unfold and develop. And he saw that. And he saw how sin got in the way of that, how sin distorted it, how sin broke our relationships with one another and with God. And now he's on board with God's redemption plan to get creation back to God's plan A. And that plan is resolved at the end of time and we're marching in that direction. So there is a mission and it's the establishment, the arrival of God's kingdom, the fulfillment of God's plan, redemption. Can you get on board with that? Can you submit to that church? Can we say, yeah, we long for the day when there's no more pain and suffering, where my sin does not hurt the people around me, where I'm not hurt by the sin of others. How many of you are looking forward to the day when he wipes every tear from our eye and there's no more death and there's no more cancer? Yeah, and we get to go before his throne and worship him in his very presence. Hey, church, we're on board with that redemption plan that Jesus launched. It's not hard to submit to that. The church willingly submits to the mission that Jesus comes to launch and to fulfill. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And I'm seeing some of the wives with a little bit of a scowl and some crossed arms going, yeah, my husband ain't Jesus. He's not always on board with that redemption plan like Jesus was. Well, the good news, I guess, of that is that you are not held accountable for your husband's heart. You're only held accountable for your obedience to God's word. And so there, there is a following, there is a submission, there is a submitting that you will be rewarded for by your father when you say, God, despite the reality of my husband and his flaws and imperfections, despite the fact that he's not functioning as Christ every day, every moment of every day, by God's grace, by the power of his spirit, I'm going to walk in this resurrection, new life, light in a dark world pattern as he enables me because I want, to be, I want to have an obedient faith. Not just a theoretical faith, not just an intellectual faith, but a faith that results in obedience, that results in transformation. And ladies, no matter what your husband's doing, you can still obey these verses and receive the blessing and the reward that God has for you, for your faithfulness.
If you think these instructions are hard, ladies, just wait till we get to the next two paragraphs. So now we get to verse 25. Instructions to husbands. At first it sounds easy because we just got done with that that verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands and, and the hair on the back of our neck stood up. And now you hear this. Husbands, love your wives. Well, that's easy. Just have romantic feelings. Piece of cake. Just give her a box of chocolate on Valentine's Day. Some flowers on her birthday. Easy, right guys? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now we get another question. How does Christ love the church? Not so easy, guys. The, the model of Christ's love is sacrificial. It's other-focused. And there is a mission and a purpose in the way Christ loves the church. We get into all these verbs now that are all related to worship, to liturgy. Pastor Mike used the word doxology. That's actually in one of these verbs that we're coming up to. So the doxology is that song, you know, that, that you've, you probably remember. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Yeah, this, I'm, I'm going to get trouble from the worship team now. But it's a, a recognition that there is a creator and there is a creation. We're in the latter category. And we proclaim praise to the king with our words, with our lives, with all that we are. So within this created order, there are sometimes objects that are consecrated to God for worship. You see it in the Old Testament, in the construction of Solomon's temple. In Lebanon, there's a bunch of cedar trees. Some of them are cut down and used to make furniture. But some of them, some of that wood and lumber is consecrated to be used in the temple to worship the one true creator God. There are vessels made out of metal. There are textiles, fabrics that have ordinary use or they can be consecrated to be used to worship God, set apart. So you'll see, there are flocks and herds. Some of them you shear for wool or butcher for meat for your family. Others you consecrate, you make holy, you use for doxology, to worship God. So all these words that are used to say, take something ordinary and mundane of this earth, of the created world, and say, no, this thing, this item, this object, this animal is now set apart for worship. It will no longer be used for ordinary purposes, for of this earth temporal purposes. But this object, item, animal is now consecrated for worship of the one true God. These are the words that are used here in husbands' instructions to their wives. What are some of those words? Well, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. This is what Jesus did for the church, all right? He's going to tie it back into how this relates to husbands and wives. So when you see the word her, the, the Greek word is very similar to the Spanish word. So church in Greek, ecclesia, and, and in, in Espanol, iglesia. Okay, it's a feminine noun, right? So the her is referring to the church. Like we do this in English usually with a ship, right? 
She sailed. I don't know why we do that, but probably some Latin root there. So that's what's happening here, verse 26. Jesus Christ loved the church, gave himself up for the church so that he might sanctify the church, cleanse the church by the washing of water and the word so that the church may be presented to himself in splendor. There's that doxology-related word. Without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, sounds like the requirements for the Old Testament sacrificial lambs, right? Go pick the best specimen of your flock and offer that to God in worship. Just an ordinary sheep, but pick one without spot, wrinkle, blemish, and now consecrate it to be used in worship. Make it holy. In other words, no longer just of this world, but now used in worship. So that the church may be holy and without blemish. That's the way Jesus loves the church. He prepares us for God's kingdom mission, his plan of redemption. He invites us and allows us and enables us and empowers us by his blood to be made clean, just ordinary sinful people, but transformed into something that can be used for worship by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's the way Jesus loves the church. Not sounding so easy now, huh, guys? That's our mission as men, as husbands. We're called to look at our bride. Say she is created to glorify God. She is a daughter of the king. And you may see some blemishes, some wrinkles, some some lack of splendor, some lack of holiness in your bride, but your job is to love her in the same way that Christ loved the church and to enable and empower and equip her to become the person that God has called her to be, to set her apart for worship. God has a plan for your wife and he's calling you to get on board with his plan and make that your mission. That's what it means to love your wife. Now how many of you ladies in the room would say, if your husband were doing that every moment of every day, you would say, I order myself beneath that vision. I submit to that plan. Any of the ladies? A couple more, a little bit of smile, some of the arms uncrossed. Okay. See how this all fits together? So there's a both and. Now, if one or the other of you is waiting for the other one to deserve, merit, earn, your submission or your love, that day will never come. So if wives, you're going, as soon as my husband acts like Jesus every moment of every day and his entire focus is on God's redemption plan and me becoming holy, an instrument of worship, at that moment I will submit to that plan and not a moment before. That day will never come. And if men, if you're saying, well, as soon as she starts looking holy without spot or wrinkle, an instrument of worship to glorify God, then I will love her. Until then, I'm going to look out for my own interests. That's just not going to work. Back to verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We are each called to lead the way in saying, you first. Men, it means saying, I will be the first one to die to self. Ladies, it it means saying, I will follow you even when you are not worthy of being followed. And trust that somehow God 
in his good grace, is going to bless and work and transform and see my obedient efforts give me more strength for those daily decisions and do his work of transformation in my spouse, in our marriage. That's not the only paragraph directed toward husbands. Now we get to verse 28. All right. I'll look it up here. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Again, Jesus, what we've just seen was the way that Jesus loves the church. Now it gets applied to the men. In the same way, just as Jesus loved the church in such a way that the church, mundane, temporal, comprised of sinful humans, is now transformed into something far more glorious to be used for God's purposes. That's how husbands should love their wives. Just like they love their own bodies, it says. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Uh, we had some discussion of this on Wednesday at Carino Coffee with the guys and we were saying, you know, I don't really look in the mirror in the morning and go, man, I love that body. Yeah, uh, maybe one of us actually said that. I won't point him out, but... But what Paul is saying is, you know, we, he, he applies it there in, the, in the, uh, the second verse of that paragraph. Verse 29. Like breathing out and breathing in, we nourish and care for our own bodies. Guys, you walk past your refrigerator, it's, it's an involuntary action, the door opens. Food goes in, right? You don't have to think about it, you don't have to put it on your agenda, you don't plan it, you just take care of that body, yourself. Is it that automatic to nourish and cherish your wife? That just as you suck some oxygen in and it gets pumped to all the cells in your body, just as you put calories in, put liquid in, take care of yourself, back's getting sore, you stretch and you lay down, take care of those stiff muscles, right? As easily as you do that, as automatically as that happens, that's how you should love your wife. You must love your wife according to God's word. That's the way Christ loves his church. I'd say that clause, verse 30, could, could refer back to a couple of different places in this passage just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So Jesus loves the church in that way because we belong to him. He's the head. We're a part of the body. He loves us in that way. I'd say that verse 30 could also refer back to everything that's been discussed back to verse 21. Back in verse 21, it said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now again, we're hearing a similar phrase. Because you are members of his body. So all of this instruction is what should typify those who revere Christ, those who belong to him, those who are a part of his body. He's enabling us to break sin's curse and the views on leadership and followership that come from 
sin. He's enabling us to see in a whole new paradigm where there is this ability to say, no, there's a way of leading that begins with you first. Let me help. Let me serve. Let me honor. And now there's that quotation from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that when we read that text a couple weeks ago, we noticed that it jumps out as strange in this narrative passage, right? It's a story. Genesis 1 and 2 is a story. This happened, then this happened next. It's a historical narrative. And all of a sudden we get to verse 24 and there's this kind of out from left field theological statement that doesn't really seem to fit in the story that we've been reading. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one. Paul taps into that same theological truth from God's redemption plan, right? God's good work of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, the reason that Jesus came to get us back on board with God's mission as we march toward the end of time when his kingdom will come and be fully established. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Right relationship will be restored. And we are living in light of that reality. Not defined by the past, not living in the moment. We're, we're really living in light of the future. And so we have a glimpse now that Jesus is Lord, even though there's a lot of people wandering around not submitting to his lordship. And they think they are God, lowercase g. And they get to be the masters of their own destiny. And we're to give a picture to the world of what that deeper reality looks like in the ways that we love one another and lead one another and follow one another and in our marriages. So Paul taps into this creation plan that God had from the beginning. And he says, this mystery is profound. Is there anyone else in the room that feels like at times your marriage is profoundly mysterious? You're like, I have no clue what I'm doing here. Okay, you're in good company. Paul, Paul affirms that sentiment. And then he says, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what's the deeper reality? Christ and the church? Or husbands and wives? I think a lot of times we think that it's the opposite. That Christ and the church refers to the relationship between husbands and wives. There's a deeper reality. It's my daily life. Waking up in the morning next to Heidi. Talking about the day. Having conversations when I'm trying to fall asleep at night. Right? Arguments. Apologies. Planning schedules. It seems more real. And then we come to church for a 25-minute sermon. (laughs) Once a week, okay, a 50-minute sermon, once a week. And we feel like, you know, this is a little bit less real than that daily life, right? So Christ and the church must be kind of like my marriage, the deeper reality. No, but Paul actually 
flips that all around. That would be like the mistake of saying, you know, I'm, I'm back here in the Old Testament sacrificing sheep. And oh, oh, the Son of God went to the cross. It's kind of like me sacrificing this sheep over here. No, the, the sheep sacrifice is a type of this deeper reality, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. And that's the relationship. That's how marriage relates to Christ and the church. The deeper reality is God and his good work of creation and his redemption plan that's only available through Jesus and will be culminated at the end of time. A little shadow of that is what Heidi and I are trying to work out in our daily life. What's your marriage mission? Is it your own fulfillment? What about single people here? What's your idea of marriage? Okay, what are you looking for down the road? Young people. Oh, I want somebody who's cute. (laughs) I want somebody who's going to, you know, fulfill me, you know, be the knight in shining armor. Not require me to change at all. Not need any work. Accepting of me. Compatible. 57 points of compatibility. Whatever that is. If that's your mission for marriage that you have in mind, it's something different from what's in God's word. And I don't think you're going to find fulfillment down that path if there actually is a creator who has a plan for your life. So if any of this is true, we each need to shift our mission for marriage to have it align with God's mission. God's mission for our marriage is that it will be a picture of Christ's love for the church. And that's a high calling for both men and women. It's a profound mystery. Finally, he he applies it to Husbands, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And when both parties are doing that, there's harmony, there's unity, it's a beautiful thing. There's transformation happening on a daily basis as we are each being conformed to the image of Christ. We're being taken from ordinary, mundane, temporal beings that can now be used as instruments of worship to our maker. And the watching world is going, what on earth is happening among these people? There's a whole different picture of leading and following than we've ever seen before. What is this? What kingdom are you a part of? This is all alien and foreign to me. Who are you people? That's precisely the vision that Paul, speaking through the Holy Spirit, has for the believers in Ephesus and in Aurora. Centennial today that the world look at us as aliens. Our citizenship must be from somewhere else because there's something so radically different about the way that we relate to one another and the mission that we have for marriage. We'll quickly look at those two short paragraphs from chapter six and see that really this, this only works if leaders and followers are both moving toward the same mission. If husbands and wives are both moving toward that mission of glorifying God and giving the world a picture of what his kingdom looks like, 
mission will be accomplished and it's going to work. So the marriage mission is the greater glory of God. What about the parenting mission? What's your task as parents? A lot of Americans today have come to believe that your mission as a parent is to secure your child's happiness. It used to be when parents would pick up their kids from children's ministry, previous generations, they would ask this question, what did you learn today? Now there's a new question. Did you have fun? That's the, the millennial generation question. Okay? Did you have fun? Are you happy? There was a, a horrific news story, bizarre news story, that I read a few years ago about a woman who was arrested because she had some human body parts in formaldehyde in her apartment. She worked in healthcare, so she had you know, brought home some souvenirs. She had like an amputated toe in a jar. And so she, I guess there's a law against that apparently. In addition to being wrong on a whole lot of levels. And they somehow got an interview with her mom. And her mom said something to the effect of, you know, I just, I just want her to be happy. It's like, lady, I don't, I, don't think you've, I don't think you understand how a person gets to happiness. Okay, going after the goal of happiness is not going to work in your parenting. Going after the goal of wisdom, adulting, maturity, Christ-likeness will bring happiness along as a fringe benefit. But if you're going after happiness, you're going to miss the mark, miss the mission. What's the mission of parenting? Well, we see it at the end of this little paragraph with some instruction to children and to parents. Okay, verse one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Here's the promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Here's the mission. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know, there's some parallels to what we've just seen in the mission of husbands toward their wives. If a husband's mission is to present his wife as an instrument of worship to God, really that's the goal of discipleship as parents. That we look at our children and we say, how can I help them to understand who they are in Christ? How can I give them a picture of God's love? How can I bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord so that when my work is complete as they transition into adulthood or, or maybe better stated, it moves into a different category, right? You never really finish the parenting task. But when I hand them off to God as their loving heavenly father, what can I do now as they're under my house, under my influence, what can I do to prepare them to be an instrument of worship to God so that they can go themselves to God's word and receive the discipline and instruction and submit themselves to that, come underneath that, arrange themselves below the sovereign God who speaks through his word and by his spirit. And kids, there's, there's good news for you. Even if your parents are not believers, there is a promise here that if you can honor and obey, you will be rewarded. Okay? There's a promise that it's two parts to it. It will go well with you and you will live long in the land. 
So there's a blessing that comes when you obey, even when the other party is not fulfilling their end of the bargain. And just as husbands and wives, if, if the leading and following depends on the other party, we'll never make any progress. Kids, if you're going, well, as soon as my parent starts bringing me up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and stops provoking me to anger, at that moment I will honor them and obey them. Well, that angry, hard, self-centered heart is never going to get to that place of submission. Parents, same, same goes to us, right? If we're saying, well, once they start obeying and honoring me, I won't have to be prov- provoking them to anger. Okay? One of us needs to go first, right? We both, we, it's a both and. We both need to be taking that initiative for, for God's kingdom and for his purposes. I would just say, parents, no matter how old your kids are, it's not too late. If you're the parent of adult children, as we're talking today, and you're saying, man, I wish I could go back. You still have that opportunity now to fulfill the command and, the, the, and experience the joy of following this command to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord through your prayer, through your encouragement, through maybe having to go back and say, you know what, son, daughter, I'm gonna write you a letter. There's some things I need to apologize about. I wish I would have done it differently. And that could be the seed of something new that God does to transform that relationship. Now we get finally to these verses directed toward bond servants and their masters. So your, your translation may have the word slaves, servant, bond servant. Again, let's think about what this meant at the time it was written in Ephesus and not import our own ideas of what slavery is. So this is really a willing servant who says, I'm going, to, I'm going to work for you for the rest of my life. Bond servant. You're going to provide for my needs, and I will be committed to serving you and working for you. That's what these words are in this, in this verse, in, the, in, in this passage. So bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Respect with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Really, this sums up this section on leadership and followership. So for both parties to remember who's really in charge. So if you're in a position of following, as we all are, in some sphere of life, we're all followers, We're looking to that person who God has placed in our lives as a leader, whether it's a boss, a parent, a husband, a church leader, whoever that person is, they're not not superior, they're not uh, more important, more valuable, more image of God than than I am. It just happens to be the position that God has placed me in, in relationship to this other person. And there will be times when they are overbearing, threatening, not looking a lot like Jesus, 
provoking me to anger. All those things that sinful leaders do. But God is calling me through his word to remember who's really in charge. He is. And he will accept my willing service as unto him, not as unto this person in my life. And then I'm going to receive back from the Lord. He's going to bless me for my faithfulness and obedience. And then we're all in positions of leadership too. Maybe some of you, it's because you're a, a child who's, who has a younger sibling. And they're looking to you and they're listening to you and they're observing you. And there are messages here. Don't threaten. Remember who's really in charge. Might doesn't make right. Remember who the real boss is. His name is Jesus, our Lord. That, that word Lord means you're the boss. It means I get down and humbly bow before you and acknowledge that you're the one who's really in charge and all authority is delegated. So he's not looking at us on a ranking scale. Saying, so, you know, I'm going to rank these humans in order of how important they are, how powerful they are. There's no partiality. He looks at us all as made in his image. He has a mission in mind and he uses imperfect leaders and followers like you and I. Today maybe you are convicted on some point and you're saying this part is really hard for me. When you use the word submit, I bristle. When you use the word love like Jesus does, I don't think I can do that. Wherever you are, on that spectrum, I would encourage you this week to get with a brother or sister in Christ that you know is a person of prayer and be honest and be frank and be real and say, you know, looking at that passage of Scripture in Ephesians 5 and 6, here's the thing that God is speaking to me. Will you pray with me? That's the beauty of living in Christian community is we have someone at our side. Someone's got our back. And we need to do that more and more as we see the day of the Lord approaching Assemble ourselves together even more. I would encourage you to do that. And then for those of you who are married or those of you who anticipate marriage at some point in the future, would you this week take a challenge as you're thinking about that you first commitment that's required really to live this out and as you're considering how am I showing my spouse, my commitment to leave and to cleave and to become one, whether it's as a leader or as a follower. What am I doing to make that happen? Would you this week take a, take a pen to paper and write a little note? Could be a post-it note, might be a card, might be a, a sheet of paper. There may be some things that you need to repent of in that, some commitments that you need to reaffirm. Could be for a person out in the future that you don't even know who they are because you're single and you're thinking, this is what I, I want to commit to when God brings that person in my path. That's the application piece. Now let's go to God in prayer because I think we each have areas that we need to submit and to follow him in. We need him to transform us by his spirit. Can we stand together? We're also going to be preparing our hearts for communion as the worship team comes up. We'll end the service with that as we remember his sacrifice. God, we thank you for your goodness, for your love. Thank you for the way that you first loved us. We thank you that you are transforming us into your image day by day. 
God, today we acknowledge and confess the sinful ways in which we have led and followed. Lord, as lording it over others, seeking our own interests, provoking to anger, putting ourselves first as leaders. And Lord, in our, in our ways of following, we've chosen to not submit. We've, we've been subversive. We've been usurpers. We've been mutineers. We've resisted and fought, again, as more indications of our sinful hearts where we put ourselves first. But today, we each come humbly before you, acknowledging our need for transformation by your Holy Spirit as you sanctify us, as you transform us from ordinary into holy, from vessels of dishonor into vessels of honor, into people who can be used to worship the one true living God. And so we submit ourselves now to your will and to your ways. And we pray for marriages right here in this room that you would bring transformation, that you'd bring healing, that you'd bring a fresh start, that you'd help us to focus in on the real mission of our marriage to show the world what your love for the church looks like. Help us, we pray now, in Jesus' name. We give you thanks for your broken body and your shed blood. Thank you that we are united in you. In your name we pray, amen.